0: Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is where we were last week, and guess what, this week as well. I learned how to worship in a mortuary. Now I need to explain that one. A church that I was involved with was looking for a place to have their Sunday service, and the local mortuary had a chapel, and uh, they let us use it. So we had a lot of fun setting up drums and amps and singing loudly. And we used to say that for such a dead place, it really came alive on Sundays. And uh, I came alive as well. I discovered that you can worship anywhere. you got to understand that talk about a place that could have distractions when you come into worship and there's a few caskets laying around and things of that nature. Um... It's a it's a different place to learn how to worship. But I learned to worship there, at least in part. And I discovered that it could be at the Chevron station where I worked or at home where I lived or uh, the place I was going to school, that worship can be done anywhere and should be actually done as a lifestyle all the time. I'm going to read something to you. It's by an unknown author. It's called Visiting Day. He had been looking forward to this moment all day long. After six days of labor, it finally arrived. It's visiting day. The man with the keys arrived to swing open the large, heavy doors. The cold, gray hall sprang to life in the warm glow of the light. He could hardly control his emotions. The families began to arrive. He peers from the corner of the room, longing for the first glimpse of his loved ones. He lives for the weekends. He lives for these visits. As the cars arrive, he watches intently. Then, finally they arrive, for whom he would do anything. They embrace. They eat a light lunch and reminisce on how things used to be. At one point, they break into singing with interruptions and laughter and applause. But all too soon, it is over. A tear comes to his eyes as they depart. Then the men with the keys close the heavy doors. He hears the key turn in the lock, marking the end of a special day. There he stands, alone again. He knows that most of his visitors will not contact him again till next week. As the last car pulls away from the parking lot, Jesus retreats into loneliness as he waits till next Sunday, visiting day. There's a large majority, perhaps even, of churchgoers who view Sunday as visiting day. Well, one observer even noted that we've become a generation of people who worship our work. We work at our play and we play at our worship. And so we have gone back. In our study on the church, we've gone back to the early church and it's been so refreshing because we discover that the early church, they devoted themselves constantly to things like the apostles doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship and prayer. And then that last verse, praising God, that's their worship, praising God and having favor with all of the people and the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. Then we moved ahead and this is where we are still today, not looking at the early church as much as the eternal church in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And we see what they're all about. We see that worship is their primary activity. It was A.W. Tozer who said worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. It wasn't missing in Jerusalem and it won't be missing in heaven I guess the question is, is it missing now? And only you can answer that on a private level. You can't answer that for anybody else. And it's not fair to point to a group and say, they don't worship like I do. You can only answer that singularly in your own heart. Well, let me just give you a recap, and I won't recap the last 13 weeks on our series on the church, just last week. Because we're picking up there in Revelation 4 and 5. And last week, we discovered the priority of worship. We discovered that as soon as John was caught up into heaven, he saw the throne and God sitting on the throne. And the initial and continual response of the four living creatures and the 24 elders and all of the angels was to bow and worship the Lord. And in that, we took a definition, didn't we? A description, a fourfold description of what true worship is. We said, first of all, worship is a response to God. We love Him because He first loved us. Second, we noted that worship is the right response to God. Then third, we noted that worship is the right response to God that comes from our hearts. And then finally, we put it all together in saying, true worship is the right response to God from our hearts whereby we place God above everyone and everything else. So that was worship. That's the priority of it. Then we discussed the premise of worship. Why do we do it? Well, we do it for two reasons. Because of who He is. There's nobody like Him. He deserves it. And for what He has done in redeeming us. And then finally last week, we looked at the people involved in worship. We saw that virtually every present, every being, worshiped God whether it was the four living creatures or the 24 elders or it was the thousands upon thousands of angels. And finally, the text just said, and everything and everyone joined together in worship. Well, we continue in that vein this morning. And uh, I'm going to draw your attention, first of all, down to verse 9 of chapter 4. And we're going to draw out some more principles. There's three more things about this scene in the worship of the eternal church that I draw your attention to. And and the next one is the position of their worship. Look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, notice each of those are treated separately. Who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now look in chapter 5 at the 8th verse. When he had taken the scroll, that's the Lamb, Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Then verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. That's where the Amen corner comes from, right there. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. So we notice three times the worshipers in heaven fall down. They're awestruck. They're in such... Wonder and they're so thankful for what God has done and who he is that they demonstrate it. They bow down. And what they're doing is essentially treating God like you treat royalty. At least in ancient times, whenever there was royalty, it was natural, even on a human level, for the subject to bow and to kiss the hand. It was a sign of respect. If you were to do a word search of just the Old Testament, and you looked up, let's say you have a computer, and it's a lot faster if you do, you type in worship. I discovered it appears in my version 97 times in the Old Testament, and the most frequent word used to translate it is the Hebrew word shacha. Now, that does not sound like a pretty word. It sounds pretty rough, shacha. But it's a beautiful word. It means to fall prostrate or to bow down it's the most common word oh come let us worship psalm 95 says and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker because the idea is that we are we are treating god like the royal of all royals the king of all kings and so it's natural to bow in his presence In the New Testament, there are many words for worship, but we gave you one last week, proskuneo, which means to kiss. And don't get the idea of that kind of a kiss. The idea was once again the bow, and usually kissing the hand of the monarch or the ring of the monarch. And putting all that together, I get two lessons from this. Number one, worship involves humility. True worship A true worshiper never comes proudly. There is always a sense of abject humility. Jesus called it being poor in spirit. You see, the very activity of worship means the absence of self-preoccupation, self-focus. It's all on him. He's the object of my worship. It's sort of like a young couple. Maybe they're engaged and once they get past the self-centeredness of fixing themselves up in the mirror for the date, when they're with each other, they're not really thinking about themselves as much as the... They're goo-goo-eyed. They're looking, he's looking at her. He's checking her out. She's checking him out. They're loving that warmth of each other's presence. That's the idea. So worship involves humility. And I, I submit to you one of the very reasons that some don't enter into worship... Is frankly, they're so used to living for themselves, they're so used to everything being about them, that they just can't get out of that mode. Because the idea of worship is, it's not about me at all. It revolves not around me, but him. In the 1940s, the Archbishop of Canterbury, then William Temple, said these words, they're, they're ever contemporary. Worship, he said, is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore, it is the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. He's right. If you want victory over yourself, become a worshiper. If God is your master passion, then you will come humbly. And I submit also that if you're weak in worship, it's because you're weak in a relationship with God. So if you're weak in worship, because you're weak in a relationship with God, let me just tell you right off the bat, church is going to be a very boring experience for you. Because you've come all about you, and you just can't get into it because there's not enough about you. But if you come for him, ooh, it's different. If you don't endure it, you actually enjoy it. That's the difference. So, worship involves humility. Something else this teaches us. Worship involves Our bodies. Now, I'll be the first to admit that at its core, worship is essentially an attitude of the heart. It's more about what goes on inside than outside. Now, having said that and admitted that, I'll also tell you that we're physical beings. And in any relationship that involves physical beings, love must be not passive, but active. It has to be demonstrated. I've been married for a number of years. Can you imagine how foolish it would be if I were to say, yeah, I, I've hugged my wife before when we got married. In fact, I told her I loved her then. I haven't told her since, but I don't need to. I'm a man of my word. I told her once it's good enough. My word is my bond. Yeah, do you ever hug her or kiss her? Don't need to. She can just, it's a matter of the heart. No, it's not. Yeah, it's a matter of the heart, but it goes beyond the heart. You show it, you demonstrate it. And here it is demonstrated in heaven by the worshipers unashamedly, unreservedly bowing down before God in humility. Well, that's only one of the positions. If you were to go through the scripture, and I'll do it very briefly because of time, there are other positions that accompanied worship, sometimes kneeling. I just quoted Psalm 95. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I know some of you grew up in churches where you had to kneel on those horrible, hard, wooden kneelers. So when you hear kneeling, you think, "Ooh, that's too formal. I remember I can relate to that. I grew up in that environment. But kneeling is appropriate. Solomon dedicated the temple and he worshiped toward heaven while he was on his knees. Daniel faced Jerusalem three times a day and worshiped on his knees. In the book of Acts, four times they were on their knees in prayer and worship to God. So there's there's an appropriate physical response in worship by kneeling. Here's a third, raising hands. We've probably seen that more than the first two that I mentioned, the raising of hands. Paul wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I want to admit something to you. When I first watched Christians raise their hands in church, I thought they were weird. I really did. I I was like that that Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like others. (laughs) I don't need to draw attention to myself. I was all into that Pharisaical ideology. Then I discovered that the raising of one's hands toward God in worship is very significant. And let me give you three reasons why. Number one, it denotes I want to receive something. I'm receiving from God. David in Psalm 141 says, I stretch out my hands toward God or I spread out my hands toward God. The idea is I want to receive. Do you come expecting to receive? When Nathan, my, now he's this big, when he was this big, my son, whether it was his birthday or Christmas, when I had a present that I wanted to give him, he always did this. That means, come on, bring it on, I'm ready for it, I'm receiving. There's another reason the Bible says that we do that, because we're giving to the Lord. In Psalm 141 verse 2, let my prayer be set before you, listen to this, like incense and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So just as the smoke of the animal would rise to God and the incense would rise to the nostrils of the father, the worshippers hands went up in the air as if to say, we're giving you now the sacrifice of our praise, receiving and giving. There's a third reason I think it's significant. It denotes surrender. Jeremiah watched the city of Jerusalem burn to ashes. And from a safe distance, he wrote a little book called Lamentations. And he said this, We raise our hands to you, for we have rebelled against you. Interesting, isn't it? We raise our hands because we've rebelled against you. What does that mean? It means I surrender. It's almost a universal sign of surrender, isn't it? Come out with your hands up. When your hands are up, you can't do anything else. You're unguarded. You're out in the open. So I think it's safe to say when the Bible talks about the lifting of hands in worship, it has one of those three items in mind, giving, receiving, or surrendering. There are other forms of physical worship. You're familiar with this one, clapping. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. It is wonderful to see an authentic, enthusiastic group of Christians clapping. There's another one standing. We did a lot of that this morning in worship. Holland had a stand almost the entire time. It's appropriate. Psalm 134. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord. Now, just as bowing is appropriate. The idea of standing when somebody who is a dignitary enters the room is also appropriate. We, um, I was at a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. We were all sitting around eating until the president walked in the room. We all stood to our feet. That was appropriate. When a judge enters the courtroom, all rise. Now, I'm putting all of that together to say this. In many churches, there are few opportunities for any physical demonstration of worship, save one. And that is sitting down. You're allowed to sit down here and to worship. You're not allowed to stand. You're not allowed to raise your hands. You're not allowed to kneel. That's too formal. You stand and you raise your hand. That's too crazy. You can only sit. And I just want to say, I don't think that's biblical. I do think that you should do all things decently and do them in order and do them in unity and not draw attention to yourself so as to get your reward in heaven. But frankly, there's a lot of other ways to sin and do that and not do it in worship. Paul put it this way. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. And so it's that demonstration. Now, I'm going to have you go down to chapter 5 once again. And look at verse 8. We've talked about the position of worship. I want you to notice what I'm calling the possessions of worship. Okay, there's worship going on in heaven. But notice what they have in their hands. Verse 8 of chapter 5. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. A harp was a lyre. And I don't mean a person who tells fibs. A lyre was an instrument. It was a trapezoidal-shaped instrument with strings on it. And the uh, the player would pluck them with a plectrum, with his fingers sometimes, or would strum them. And that would be the accompaniment to the song. So... In their hands, they've got this, think of it as a guitar, perhaps, when you read that, a harp. It's a small little harp. And then bowls full of incense. Notice what it says, which are the prayers of the saints. In other words, what it means, I believe, their prayers became songs, and their songs were backed up by music. So I've learned so far in this that worship involves humility, worship involves our bodies, and worship involves melody. Music. And you got to know that the Hebrew culture had lots of music. When they crossed the Red Sea after Pharaoh's armies were drowned, they danced and they brought out the timbrels and the instruments and they sang. In the temple, they had instrumentation and music. At the feasts of Israel. And believe it or not, during wartime sometimes. In fact, one king, Jehoshaphat, had the musicians lead the way into battle. Maybe he just didn't like the worship group and wanted to get him killed first. I don't think so. I think the idea was that we're going to conquer this by worship and praise. As the worship developed in Israel, David was big on this. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place, 1 Chronicles 15. I'm going to read a portion to you. Quote: David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals, and by raising their voice with resounding joy. Now, after ten chapters, after a period of time, David organizes the, the national worship for Israel. Now, this is 1 Chronicles 25. Listen to this. David and the captains of the army separated for the service some who should prophesy with harps with stringed instruments and cymbals, and the number of the skilled men performing their service was 288. That's a big worship team. Those were the paid professionals, the instrumenteers of the nation, who led in worship. 288 of them. Music has always had a profound influence on every culture. From folk songs to the national anthem to advertising. You want to sell something, you hire somebody to to get a catchy little tune and you play it over and over again and people remember it and they'll sing it. I still sing crazy songs from the 70s and 80s that are advertisements. I can't get them out of my mind. Isn't that a song? I can't get you out of my mind. See, it's all there. It's trapped. Songs exert a powerful influence. Now, here's a question I thought of as I was going through these studies. And I don't know that I can answer it, but I'm going to try, at least in part. What did the music of the early church sound like? Don't you wish you had a CD? You know, the first choir or the first worship band in Jerusalem, what did it sound like? Well, we don't exactly know, and I can't answer that fully, but I can tell you this. I know a couple of things. I know they were Jewish, and I know they used to go to the temple. And if I'm reading the Scripture right, based upon what I've just read in Chronicles and other places like Psalms, their worship that they were used to hearing in the temple at the feast was probably very rhythmic and very loud. In, uh, in Psalm 150, it's the last psalm. I know they sang hymns, by the way. It does say four times or three times in the book of Acts they sang hymns. But don't think of hymns as the way, you know, you think of hymns because we're talking 2,000 years ago. It meant something different to them. It meant some Hebrew expression that they had probably heard in the synagogue or in the temple. But Psalm 150, it says, Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Those are usually loud. Um, Praise him with the lute and the harp. Those would be stringed instruments. Praise him with the timbrel. Those are the, the, what do we call them? The uh, tambourines, thank you very much. And the dance. Praise him with flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. And praise him with clashing cymbals. It sounds lively. It sounds rhythmic. It sounds like it's a lot of fun. There has always been a controversy about Christian music. What's appropriate for Christian music? This is a church. We don't allow that music in here. I've heard that since I was saved. And I figure since I still hear it, that we'll probably hear it till Jesus comes back. What music is appropriate? I've heard things like, you can't have that in this church because that kind of music is of the devil. The devil's in the beat. And I've discovered what people mean by that. Basically, they mean, God likes the music I like. If I like it, it must be what God likes. If I don't like it, it must be of the devil. It's very, very subjective. Is Christian music, whether it's Christian rock music or drums or organs or whatever, is any of that of God or of the devil? Answer, no. It just is. And it depends on who's using it. If God's using it, it's powerful. If the devil's using it, it's also very powerful, but for the wrong reasons. To talk about music and say it's of the devil or of God, it's sort of like a knife or like fire. If I were to say, all knives are evil, you'd say, why do you say that? I'd say, well, knives have killed a lot of people. I would then probably hear you counter with something like, Yeah, but they've set a lot of people free who were bound with ropes. The knife could come in and slice the rope and set a captive free. Or if I were to make the statement, fire is evil, because people have been burned by that. Their houses have burned to rubble by fire. You would say, however, fires have warmed people who are cold. So it depends who's using it. In this controversy, Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, spoke. He was a very... Strong proponent of lively song. In fact, that was part of the revival of the Reformation. He had some pretty strong convictions. Here's one of them. If any man despises music as all fanatics do, for him I have no liking. Pretty straightforward. I don't like him, he says. For music is a gift and grace of God, not an invention of men. The devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Now, let's look at a one-third and final point that I want to draw your attention to in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 5, and that's the praise that is ascribed in worship. The praise that is ascribed in worship. It says, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy. Remember, that's the meaning of worship to ascribe worth. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you. That is you, Jesus, were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign upon the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And they're all singing. As the others in verse 9, they sang a new song. That's the praise ascribed. There's a couple things that I I want to draw out of this. First of all, it says they sang. Notice, it doesn't say they sat and watched others sing. It says they sang. Brings up a question. Okay, How should we sing? You know, the Bible says nothing about technique or tempo or rhythm or beat as much as the attitude of the heart when you sing. Make a joyful noise. Sing joyfully unto the Lord. It's all about that inner, you, you sing, but it doesn't have anything to say about if you don't have a good voice, don't sing. Aren't you glad? Make a joyful noise. Anybody can do that. I had a great conversation last week after first service with a guy. He's just so excited. He said, I love it here. He goes, he goes you know, I don't even have a good voice, but I'm sort of set free. Because if, if you're saying this right, I can sing. I said, not only can you sing, you need to sing and you need to sing loud. Here's my, here's my thinking. If you have a bad voice, sing really loud. Because what that's going to do is make all the people around you have good voices, want to sing louder to drown you out, and the whole place will be filled with anthem. I may be a little warped, but that's just the way I think. (laughs) Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I had a counselor at a conference one time say to us all, he said, if you have a beautiful voice that God has blessed you with, and you bless the Lord with that voice, if God has given you a bad voice, you give it back to him. Here's an article I want to read. It's from the Detroit Free Press. It says, it's called Remedy for a Prune Face. Ladies, you want to stay young? Then join a church choir. Women who sing stay younger looking longer. A singer's cheek muscles are so well developed by exercise that her face will not wrinkle as soon as the non-singer. I can just picture our Easter choir, can't you? It'll be packed (laughs) after that one. And I didn't share that with you just so that you go, okay, it's another beauty tip. I'm just saying that to say that God created us to do this. He created us. That's part of his design to be singers, to be worshipers. So they sang. And something else in closing in verse 9, notice what they sang. They sang a new song. In other words, it was a song they'd never sung before. This is it. This is the new song in heaven. Nine times in the Bible, the concept of singing a new song is presented usually in the imperative. It's usually put like this. Sing unto the Lord a new song. (laughs) You know how many people I find resistant to that? I don't want to sing a new song. The old songs are good enough. They're good enough for Paul. They're good enough for me. They don't want to sing anything new. Oh, no, the old hymns. Now, I know I'm stepping on toes. I love the old hymns. I believe in the old hymns. In fact, I have found a depth of theology and thought in the old hymns that I don't find, frankly, in many new songs. But if we are resistant to expressing new songs to the Lord... We're indicting ourselves, and here's why. Because most of those great old hymns were sung about 200, 300, 400 years ago. And if all we do is sing old hymns, we are saying something bad about ourselves. We're saying God stopped inspiring people 200 years ago. Oh, yeah, those old songs, yeah, aren't they great? But from then until now, God hadn't been doing anything with his people. I think every generation needs fresh expressions... Of their worship to the Lord. By the way. Think about it. 200, 300 years ago. Those songs were contemporary. They weren't the old classics. They were edgy. They were edgy. Can you imagine that? Edgy hymns. And also, did you know that they were considered controversial? You see... Throughout history, many people have come and looked at church music and decided, we need to fix things around here. We need to freshen it up, liven it up, contemporize it. One of them was Martin Luther in the Reformation. He did something bold in the year 1524. He went and took drinking melodies and put Christian lyrics to them, bar songs, Songs the world sang. And he brought the melody into the church and he put Christian lyrics to them. Let me tell you one of those songs. A mighty fortress is our God. Here's another one. Away in a manger. Now, you've got to just think then, when Martin Luther started singing Away in a Manger and that was a bar melody, the Christians said, How? He can't do that. That's of the devil. Would you ever think Away in the Manger is of the devil today? It's a classic. It wasn't then. And here's why. Listen to what Martin Luther said. How has it happened that in the secular field there are so many fine poems and so many beautiful songs while in the religious field we have such rotten, lifeless stuff? Okay, Marty, tell us how you really feel. I'd have liked Martin Luther. In 1690. A young boy after church complained to his father, something like this, dad, the songs of church are boring. Now, his dad got very angry at his son and said, you know, if you think you can do better, you ought to write your own. So (laughs) Isaac Watts did. Young Isaac Watts decided we need some new songs. And so he wrote such tunes as when I survey the wondrous cross and joy to the world. The Lord has come but when he wrote them, they weren't classics. Then there was William Booth, and William Booth decided that music needed to be updated, and he was tired of the organ, and he decided, I'm going to bring in trumpets. That's what the Bible says to do, right? Praise him with the trumpets, and praise him with drums and cymbals. And he took the music out of the church into the streets because he said, those people are never coming to hear this stuff. So he brought other stuff to them. And when he did... Church leaders said, that's devil music. But we thank God for the Salvation Army and what William Booth has done. Then there was uh, Moody, Dwight L. Moody, and his revivals all over the United States and Europe. And Dwight L. Moody was the preacher, but he had a worship leader. His Holland Davis was a guy named Ira Sankey. And Ira Sankey took the contemporary songs like Luther, the waltzes, Those were the edgy dances back then. The waltzes, and put them into the church and put lyrics to them, Christian lyrics to them. Imagine if we were to take an Eminem song and put worship words to it. That would be what it would be like. It would be fun to watch people's reaction. Well, he took that over to Europe, and in fact, he was in Glasgow in the year 1874, and when he um, sang before Moody and after Moody's crusades, the Scottish church heard it and said, that's steam kettle music, steam kettle music, they called it in critique because it just was loud, noisy stuff. Up to that point, the Scottish church had only put to music the Psalms of David and were very critical about any new form. So you see, this stuff has gone on for a long time. Here's my point in saying all of this in the last 13 weeks and the last two last week and this week. Let's see worship as the prime activity of the Christian. We were called out of the world as non-worshippers to be transformed and to be worshipers. It is the prime activity. And it's not a -a once-a-week activity. As we said, it's a lifestyle. We're created for it. We're redeemed for it. And we discovered today it involves humility because it's a surrender. We're giving ourselves over completely to him. And... It involves expressing our love to him. And I, I want to just say, in closing, if you don't want to raise your hands, don't. If you're just the kind, you just say, "I'm just not one of those, then don't do it. don't worry about it. It's not like you have to do it. If you want to do it, do it. You want to stand up, do it. If there's a moment where you're moved and you want to bow down, do it. Be sensitive. Do it not to draw attention to yourself, but do it in a way that all the attention will be directed to the Lord because he's worth it. Concerning songs um, be open to new songs and new beats and new rhythms. be open to new songs, but love the old songs and sing all songs That's say I'm not going to sing that song. I don't like it, but you love him. A word to you musicians out there. Would you write us some new hymns? Would you write us some fresh expressions? Say, yeah, but my style's a little bit different. Good, bring it on. Oh, you may not be used to it. Great, bring it on. Let's try it out. Let's see what the Lord will do with it. Just recently we were given the name to use Calvary Chapel Music. It was uh, something that was being closed down and they gave it here to us at Ocean Hills Church so we don't know what the Lord wants to do with that but I want to see new, fresh expressions of music and worship go on. Listen, as your car pulls away this morning from the parking lot it's my sincere prayer that Jesus won't be saying i got to wait another week till visiting day but that you'll walk out get in your car, and you'll say, it's time to worship. And you'll drive down the street, and the song will come into your minds, and you'll worship. Or tomorrow at work, you'll you'll pause and worship the Lord in some fashion. And it just sort of becomes that natural, unending anthem of your heart.